This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. Nessun Dorma is one of the most beloved arias in all of opera. Its triumphant orchestrations and glorious melody has made the opera Turandot a favorite of audiences since its premiere in 1926. On today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we take a look at the final work in Puccini's long and successful career. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Join us at the Met Opera Guild's annual luncheon. On November 20th at Cipriani 42nd Street, we'll honor Martina Arroyo and Teresa Stratus on the 60th anniversary of their Met debuts, with appearances by Harold Blackwell, Stephanie Blythe, and Eric Owens, and a musical tribute by Eileen Perez and Matthew Polanzani. This luncheon will be a highlight of the opera season. Tickets start at 275. For reservations, call 212-769-7009 or visit metguild.org slash diamond. Puccini thrilled audiences with his dramatic, imaginative, and sometimes violent score to his final opera, Turandot. Finished after his death by composer Franco Alfano, Turandot remains a mainstay of the operatic canon. The magnificent sopranos Christine Gerke and Nina Stemma share the role of the Ice Princess this season at the Met in Franco Zeffirelli's opulent production. I'm Stuart Holt, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we have a lecture from the archives of the Guild's critically acclaimed series, Talking About Opera, with playwright and opera commentator Albert Inarato taking a closer look at Puccini's final opera. Turandot was Giacomo Puccini's last opera. He did not finish it and did not live to hear any of it. He died of throat cancer at the age of 65 on November 29, 1924. Frango Alfano, a gifted younger composer, completed the opera. The Alfano ending, nearly always in a heavily cut edition, has been the typical finale since the opera's splashy world premiere at La Scala in 1924. Recently, the Italian composer Luciano Berio has made an effort to complete the opera using more of Puccini's surviving sketches. For a long time, Turandot was considered a difficult and unrewarding opera and only occasionally performed. Its title role is a voice-breaker that placed enormous strain on the poor soprano assigned it, and even the tenor role, at least in the big riddle scene in Act Two, is high and loud. Just a little less than 50 years ago, a Swedish soprano changed all that. Birgit Nielsen called Turandot her vacation role. Though others thought it virtually impossible to sing well, Nielsen had, after all, done Wagner's Isolde in Richard Strauss's Elektra. For her, Turandot was nothing. She learned it during a vacation, then sang it everywhere to immense acclaim. She was often joined by the impossibly handsome Franco Corelli, a tenor with blazing high notes. Together, they turned Turandot into a worldwide hit, and they are the singers we'll be hearing in our musical examples. Once the opera was being done so often, listeners noticed it was a typically tuneful Puccini opera. 
The tenor has two instantly memorable arias. The one in Act Three, Nessun Dorma, Let No One Sleep, became a signature tune of the renowned tenor Luciano Pavarotti, and something of an anthem at European soccer matches where its final word, vincerò, I shall win, seemed either an appropriate cry of celebration or at least of optimism. There is also a heart-wrenching death scene that is all Puccini. That's where a poor little slave girl is tortured and finally kills herself. The slave is named Liu, and she is in the best tradition of heartbreaker Puccini girls like Madame Butterfly. It's hard to know what Puccini would think of Alfano's work. Arturo Toscanini had some idea. When asked what he thought of the finale while he was conducting it, he said, I tremble in terror that Puccini's ghost is going to come up from hell and smack me. He meant it. At the first night, he stopped with the death of Liu and announced to the audience, in a choked voice, as the newspapers put it, here is where the opera ends because at this point the maestro died and he walked off the podium, while the audience silently filed out. Afterwards, during the first run, he conducted only a few performances of the opera with Alfano's cut ending. Now, very few opera composers of any century, and almost none of the 20th century, had the career of Giacomo Puccini. All the same, he was an insecure man, often paralyzed by doubt, morbidly oversensitive to criticism, and easily convinced that he wasn't worth much. In his last decade, he obsessed that he had written fewer operas than many of his rivals, as well as historical figures like Verdi, who he was always being compared to. He was also obsessed by his inability to come up with an unequivocal hit after Madame Butterfly, written in 1904. After Butterfly, he had written La Rondine in several versions. His long final version is still largely unknown. He had had a great success at the Metropolitan Opera world premiere of The Girl of the Golden West, La Fanchula del West, but the opera proved hard to mount elsewhere, and it was not a big international sensation. The Met had also premiered his Tritico, three perfectly made one-act operas. But in their own time, they were considered trivial, and the middle opera, Suor Angelica, about a suicidal nun and the spirit of her abandoned little boy, was considered past the pale by a good many non-Latin audiences. Puccini was often wounded by the condescending description of him as the composer of the little woman, a reference to the girls like Mimi in La Boheme and Chocho San, Madame Butterfly, who in his operas were put through the ringer. Though Fanchula is an appreciable work of considerable ambition and accomplishment, it is not a grandiose opera, and Rondine and the Tritico operas are small in scale. So the dismissal of his talent stung. One thing that drew him to Turandot was the desire to make a grand, magnificent gesture, one that would equal the outpourings of two of his famous contemporaries, his one-time friend but eventual rival Pietro Mascagni and the prolific German Richard Strauss, Mascagni had no problems with grandiosity, though he had had an immense early success with his one-act, Cavalleria Rusticana. With age, he had chosen massive subjects and filled them out with huge gestures. An important paper described Mascagni as il creatore più nobile della musica italiana, the most noble creator of Italian music. That enraged Puccini. When he read it, he telegraphed someone, and what was Verdi, a trumpet player? Now, of these two men, Puccini was the international god of new Italian operas. Four of his works, Manolesco, La Boheme, Tosca, and Madame Butterfly, were simply given everywhere, in every country, in most languages, under every conceivable circumstance, and sometimes under inconceivable circumstances. Mascagni had only managed that kind of success with Cavalleria, written way back in 1890. But Puccini was obsessed with Italy and the Italian musical press. His status was not as great there as it might have been. No one then, of course, knew how well his four famous operas would hold up a century and more after they were written. And no one knew that most of Mascagni's operas would be forgotten. However, during Puccini's lifetime, there was in the Italian press a kind of reverse snobbism. That Mascagni's later operas did not do so well outside of Italy was used to prove their profound Italianness. That Puccini was so internationally feted a composer, who often chose exotic stories, was used to show in many quarters that he was somehow un Italian, less patriotic than Mascagni. 
It didn't help that Puccini was a brilliantly international creator, using the then avant-garde techniques of advanced French and German composers for theatrical effect. Those opinions drove Puccini crazy. He and Mascagni had been students at the Milan Conservatory at the same time. Each could recall their early friendship with a lot of mutual fondness. But in later life, each ruthlessly sought the crown of Italian opera, and both were capable of considerable backstabbing to get it. But one catastrophe that afflicted all these composers and their colleagues was the First World War. It changed culture permanently. Before then, opera had been part of the mainstream, a popular entertainment, enjoyable by large crowds on a variety of levels of sophistication. In Latin countries, average people had followed the new operas, famous composers, and the leading singers with the avidity we reserve for Hollywood and television celebrities. In Germany and France, opera had been part of a complex intellectual and cultural life, taken very seriously for how it reflected the problems and promises of the surrounding societies. In the big North American cities, opera had been a magnet for the cream of high society and for the many immigrants who attended performances. But even in the Wild West, touring opera companies could bring out crowds, excited by the spectacles, the very strangeness of the form, and the sound of huge voices in the days before amplification. But the war created an organized carnage never seen before in human history. An entire generation of young men in Europe had simply been mowed down. The conflict tore apart old cultures and societies and left many countries in severe financial crisis. Into the vacuum came young men and women anxious to have a good time, not interested in sitting in an opera house for hours on end. They wanted to dance to the new American-style jazz sung by a new kind of singer called crooners. They wanted to go to the movies. Film had swept all the old art forms out of their preeminent places, especially among middle-class and poorer youngsters. Before 1914, Puccini and many others had felt themselves profoundly relevant to their societies. Afterwards, and not all that gradually, they saw themselves as having to fight for significance in a new world increasingly dominated by what we call pop. Every commentator on Turandot tries to understand what was going through the composer's mind in choosing a subject so unlike anything else he set. Many look backwards, defining Turandot as Puccini's grand opera, massed choruses around a royal court, great royal personages swept up in unlikely crises of love, processionals, marches, and spectacle. Who knows? Puccini may subconsciously have had Giuseppe Verdi's Aida in mind, after all, as a boy, he killed himself to get from his hometown of Lucca all the way to Pisa to hear it when it was new. But I think Turandot has a lot to do with the war and the changes it wrought. That the Princess Turandot is a forbidding creature indeed didn't faze Puccini. He must have pondered the enormous successes that Richard Strauss had had with Salome and Electra, both monstrous women in tangled plots with little in them that was automatically sympathetic. The stressful vocal line he assigned his Turandot reflects the influence of Strauss. Puccini's two librettists, Giuseppe Adami and Renato Simoni, were both involved with the Italian movie industry, and Mascagni had even written music to accompany films. While Puccini was working on Turandot, sometimes waiting impatiently for rewrites from his librettists, Adami actually directed several movies. It must have occurred to these men that one way to compete with a cinema was to put the grand spectacles of movies on stage. And so Act Two of Turandot is an immense eyeful of sheer grandeur, somewhat oriental but mostly fairy tale. Puccini had already written a vivid torture scene, that of the painter Cavaradossi in Tosca. But that happens off stage. In Turandot, there is another extended torture scene of the young girl Liu. This time it happens stage center. I think this reflects a sense of the harshness and cruelty so many had experienced as a result of the war. Also, many of the spectacle movies depicted human suffering far more vividly than had been thought appropriate on stage. The big crowds on stage may be a reference to the big choral operas of the mid-19th century, but I wonder if the mobs that were commonplace throughout post-war Italy, workers striking, the very poor rioting for food, Socialists marching for changes in the laws were not in the back of Puccini's mind when he conceived of the huge unwashed throngs that populate Turandot and take part in some of the action. 
Those who think Puccini wanted to write a sort of compressed grand opera may be right. But I think he dreaded being thought of as old-fashioned and hated any reminder that his hits had occurred long before the World War. Turandot has many of the big gestures that music on stage lends itself to, of course, but I think it reflects the wilder, coarser, harder world that Europeans were living in after 1918, as well as a desire to be up-to-date. And this left its mark on the music, too. Ironically, Richard Strauss was in the same bind. He died in 1949, but his hit operas were all written at or shortly after the turn of the century, Zalome, Electra, and Rosenkavalier. Strauss, rather like Mascagni, would keep churning out ambitious grand works, which, like Mascagni, he used his reputation as a conductor to further. But again, from Puccini's point of view in the late teens, Strauss was continually offering large-scale new operas to an interested world, while he procrastinated, turning prospects over and over in his mind. Perhaps here I should explain why I've been pronouncing Turandot with that final T. It's really up for grabs. Some people think it should be pronounced Turando, but that is Frenchified, and I don't know of any proof that Puccini or his associates used that pronunciation. On the other hand, when a high note ends on the final syllable of the name Turandot, then singers will drop the T, which may be what Puccini intended. In my opinion, Turandot reflects Gozzi's original title. Returning to Gozzi, Ironically, the only text the men could find was a translation of a translation. The great German playwright Schiller had translated Turandotte into German and done some rewriting, too. Verdi's friend de Maffei had translated that back into Italian. Gozzi's play was part of his war with his rival Goldoni. Turandotte was a bold, uproarious, and outrageous comedy relying on the improvisational aspects of Venetian theater. These included a lot of work for the masks, the traditional Commedia dell'arte parts including Harlequin, Brighella, Scaramuccio, and others. Goldoni, in search of greater realism, had banned them from his own plays. Gozzi was outraged. Turandotte, as a whole, is a joking what-if. What if women had the power to treat men the way men often treat women? The Princess Turandotte is an early version of a liberated female who wants equal rights and spends all her time reading books rather than trying to look pretty. She has fun teasing her many suitors with riddles. If they fail, they lose their heads, literally. But at the end of the play, the princess comes forward to ask for applause, as was the custom. In doing so, she asks not to be misunderstood. She loves all men, and her little play has just been a joke to teach a few of the mean ones a lesson. Puccini was often stimulated if someone else had set a given subject. After all, Leon Cavallo had suggested La Boheme, and they had a race to see who would finish his opera first. Puccini turned on the Tosca libretto until someone else was interested in it, and of course Samasnay had set Manon Lescaut, calling his opera simply Manon, well before Puccini. Turandot was no different. The distinguished German-Italian Ferruccio Busoni had written a Turandot during the First World War, it was much truer to Gozzi than Puccini's version was to be, and it is far more intimate. Curiously, one of Puccini's composition teachers at the conservatory, Antonio Bazzini, had also written a Turanda, given at La Scala in 1867. Some features in the libretto Bazzini's set seem to have influenced the course of action in Puccini's opera, especially the idea that Turandot would end with a grand duet for the lusty prince and melting princess. I wonder if one tiny motive for Puccini was to trump one of his own teachers. In any case, though Puccini eventually read the original Gozzi text, Schiller dominated the adaptation for Puccini. Schiller abandoned the playfulness, the silliness even, of Gozzi's conceit for a more brutal and sadistic tale. He mixed some of the Arabian Nights in for color. Maffei's translation back into Italian kept these nastier elements. What is mainly left of Gozzi are the masks, the comic characters who comment on the action. In the opera, these are called Ping, Pang, and Pung. But their commentary is ironic, angry and nostalgic by turns. They aren't funny, and they have much to do with the course of action in the play, including calling for the torture of Liu. 
She was an invention of the librettists to give Puccini a chance to do what he did best. But curiously, Puccini only flirted with the idea that Liu's idealistic suicide would affect Princess Turandot and contribute to her becoming human. Only one word is exchanged between the two women, amore, love. It was added by Puccini. But there is no sense that having witnessed the girl's death softens Turandot. As he had with Madame Butterfly and La Fanchula del West, Puccini did research into melodies he could use. He found a little music box of Chinese tunes, and many found their way into the opera. He also showed off his up-to-date harmonic sense and his extraordinary ability as an orchestrator. But finally, in the big tunes that come, we can hear the last great Italian composer of operas, in the last Italian opera to occupy a secure place in the standard repertory, doing what he did best. The first act of Turandot is brilliantly and powerfully organized. Rather like Tosca, the opera starts with the bold statement of the theme of a bloodthirsty but ambiguous character, this time the Princess Turandot. This is immediately followed by crunching, brutal chords that introduce the announcement a Mandarin will make that the Prince of Persia has been condemned to die for failing to answer Turandot's riddles. Those chords, and much like them in this act, show Puccini using the then radical concept of bitonal harmony. Two opposing keys are combined to give the bloodthirsty announcement a sense of horror. We're in a grand square in Peking, right in front of the royal compound. There's a gong on a platform. He who would challenge the Princess Turandot in her riddles must strike that gong. A crowd has assembled to hear the announcement of the fate of the Prince of Persia. Hearing it will be death, they cry out in bloodthirsty delight, but suddenly a powerful theme erupts in the orchestra. Puccini's music has a wonderful immediacy and impact. A lone voice, a girl's, cries out. The blind old man she is guiding has fallen when the crowd surged forward. A lone young man comes to her aid and recognizes his father. He is the deposed king, Timur. They had been separated in the terrible catastrophe they suffered. Timur explains his fate as a wandering beggar helped by a girl he dare no longer call slave. Her name is Liu. The prince blesses Liu for her kindness, but asks why she has given up any safety and comfort she might find to help his father. Thank you. 
Because, she says, one day in the palace you smiled at me. But the prince is given no chance to respond to this because the chorus erupts into a sort of death dance waiting for the prince of Persia to be brought through and killed. But suddenly they realize the moon is late rising and they call for this pale face to appear. They identify the moon with the mysterious and eerie princess Turandot. The march to the scaffold for the Prince of Persia starts with a boy's chorus celebrating moonrise. They are singing one of the tunes Puccini got from his Chinese music box. The crowd punctuates their singing by humming. Soon, the Prince of Persia himself is led on, on his way to a public death. The crowd, once bloodthirsty, is shocked by his youth. They begin to cry for mercy for him. The unknown prince joins in crying out against and even cursing the wanton cruelty of this Turandot. The crowd becomes so urgent that the princess herself appears. It is her only appearance in the act, and it's a brilliant theatrical stroke. She doesn't sing or speak, she simply gestures. The Prince of Persia must die, and she vanishes. Though this quiets the crowd, our prince has been struck powerfully by her beauty. Sogno divina meraviglia. She is a dream, divine, miraculous. Oh. 
Timur is terrified that he has found his son only to lose him. He begs Liu to reason with his son, but the prince is love-struck. They argue that there is only death here, but he can only think of life and one name. His cry of Turandot has been echoed by the unfortunate Prince of Persia just as the axe has fallen. This doesn't stop our prince who heads for that gong. Three outlandish figures leap on stage right in front of him, stopping him. They urge this crazy young man to run away, singing one of the Chinese tunes Puccini found. These are the masks, Ping, Pang, and Pong. They are ministers in the government of Turandot's father, the elderly Altuum. And they don't want to see more bloodshed for no reason on Chinese soil. Besides, they ask, what good is Turandot? You can't eat her. And they warn the prince about her impenetrable riddles. And the ghosts of all the princes she has killed echo them. All to no avail. He still loves her. All Timur can think to do is to call on Liu to plead. She does. For the old man who has nothing but his son, and for herself who has only the memory of his smile. This is the memorable aria Signori Ascolta. The prince has a famous response, non piangere liu, don't weep liu. He is tender with the little girl, but determined. This builds into one of the great Puccini finales. The prince's father, Liu, and the three ministers all plead with him to flee. Meanwhile, the prince pushes his way toward the gong that will sound his entry into the contest for Turandot. The commotion draws the crowd, who also try to restrain the prince, but he breaks through and, singing the name Turandot, strikes the gong three times.
The crowd screams in anticipation of more bloodshed, and all the three ministers can do is laugh helplessly. Act two is divided into two scenes. The first is an intimate scene for the three masks. It takes place in a little pavilion where they hide from their official duties and drink tea. Nearby is the huge courtyard where the riddles will be asked the brave young prince. It's actually my favorite scene in Turandot. Ping, Pang, and Pong give voice to the things we know were close to Puccini's heart, the beauties of nature, the joys of solitude, and the nostalgia for a time that probably never was, but which we seem to remember anyway as we age. In Act One, we heard the fingerprints of Stravinsky and Schoenberg, but in this scene there is an infinite delicacy. Puccini indulges in what is called chinoiserie, samples of how Western ears imagine Asian music. He had equals in this, Ravel, Franz Lehar in his Land of Smiles, even Gustav Mahler in Das Lied von der Erde, which also has themes from a Chinese music box. But nobody does this better than Puccini does here. First, the masks bustle about. One will have to prepare a burial for when the unknown prince loses, and the other will have to prepare a marriage bed just in case he wins. They are bored and irritated by all this. But soon they are thinking about the hidden villa each has deep in the fields or forests. They long for the peace and sweetness they can find there and lament being stuck here in the murder capital watching their lives pass them by. They hear noises of an immense crowd gathering in the royal palace for the test of the unknown prince. They lament the new China, bidding farewell to the honest, decent place they knew as young men. But life, or as it may be, death, goes on, and the three sing glory to China, where the irrationality of love has at least increased tourism, and they hear the trumpets announcing the ceremonies. 
sogno si sogna e il palazzo già formicola di lanterne di serve di soldati udite il gran tamburo del tempio verde già scritto le finite già fatte di Pechino che trombe altro che pace ha inizio la cerimonia The transition music between scenes displays Puccini's mastery as an orchestrator. We find ourselves in the vast public courtyard of the palace. Nearly always in productions, there is a huge long stairway at the top of which Princess Turandot will appear and which she will descend. Far away behind this stairway sits the ancient emperor, her father, Altum. In front of it are ranged eight wise men who hold the answers to the riddles on parchment. There is a massive crowd assembled to see the prince fail, as all the others have. Timur and Liu are crouched in despair. The people sing the imperial hymn wishing their ruler ten thousand years of life. The unknown prince enters and is addressed by the emperor. He begs him to leave. There has been too much blood. But the prince is stalwart, and he wants to be tested. Three times the emperor begs him to leave. Three times the prince insists he be allowed to try. The emperor can only agree. The Mandarin who started the opera appears again to cry the law. Turandot will be the pure bride of any prince who can answer her three riddles. He who fails loses his head. Then Turandot appears, gloriously attired, a grand, beautiful, and frightening figure. She has a demanding aria in which she seeks to explain herself, in questa regia. In this very kingdom, many, many years ago, a cry resounded, un grido, a cry unheard, and it was the cry of an ancestor of the princess, Principessa Luling. This princess had been taken and raped by a stranger, a stranger just like the unknown prince. Turandot feels herself possessed of the spirit of Luling on earth to avenge her cry and her death.
To that warm tune, the princess swears no man will ever have her. And she tells the prince, the enigmas are three, and for him, death is one. No, he cries, the enigmas are three, and for him, one is life. They join their voices in a thrilling daredevil climax that takes them to the high sea. With a fanfare, the riddle scene starts. What glides like a ghost through the dreams and prayers of man and is born every night only to die at morn? The unknown prince hardly needs to think. No, it doesn't die at dawn, but lives eternally. It is hope. The wise men consult their scrolls and agree. The first answer is hope. The crowd stirs with excitement. The princess plunges right on. What is fire that doesn't burn? What is like a fever so that if you lose it, you freeze? This time the prince has to think, and even Liu has to urge him on. Princess, it is something that rushes through my veins every time I see you. It is blood. The wise men confirm the answer, and the crowd cheers. Turandot orders them lashed with whips. She asks, What freezes when it burns, and burns when it freezes? What is most closed when most open? What makes you obey even when you command it? This time, the unknown prince really seems stumped. The princess mocks him, has his tongue frozen, and he seemed so sure of victory. But at the last moment, the princes understood. Fire and ice, slave and master, the answer is Turandot. The wise men concur, and the crowd acclaims the unknown prince the victor. Turandot is devastated and throws herself at the foot of her father's throne. She begs him not to abandon her. But the emperor tells his daughter he must keep his oath. She will be the stranger's bride. The crowd encourages her to see this as joyous, but Turandot is terrified and begs more. She is sacred as his daughter, 
She pleads not to be abandoned as though she were a slave. Stunning High C was the prince crying out that he wants Turandot on fire, not in terror. And he proposes his own riddle. For the first time in the opera, we hear a theme that specifically is associated with the ardent unknown prince. the unknown prince. Find my name by dawn. If you do, you may kill me. Even the emperor is touched by the prince's magnanimity and remarks he hopes he is able to welcome the prince as his son on the morrow. The crowd cries glory to the emperor and to this prince. Act three starts much later that night in the royal gardens. It is near dawn, and the prince's name has not been found. Royal messengers can be heard far and wide with the princess Turandot's new law. Let no one sleep on pain of death until the stranger's name be found, Nesundorma. The prince listens to this proclamation and to female voices offstage lamenting that no one can find the name and sings his famous aria calling for the dawn to come so he can possess the princess as his bride. Three ministers enter, terrified they will lose their own lives in failing to find the stranger's name. He tries to dismiss them, but they offer him everything they can find. Beautiful women, uncountable treasures, palaces and army, everything just to go away. They disgust the prince. Oh, but he doesn't know how vindictive the sleepless one Turandot will be at their failure. The prince has rejected their offers, but then Timur and Liu are hustled in. Someone has seen them talking to the prince the very night before. They must know his name. They call for the princess who enters. Ping, the head minister, is delighted to tell her they have found two creatures who must know the prince's name. The prince vehemently denies it. Turandot orders them tortured, starting with the blind old man. Liu rushes forward to say she alone knows the name. 
and it will be her supreme pleasure not to tell it. At a signal from the princess, Liu is tortured and cries out. Timur is terrified at the sound. Liu tells them to proceed with the torture, but to stop her mouth, so the old man will not be afraid. She is tortured more. Turandot steps forward. What has given you such courage? She asks Liu. L'amore, love, answers Liu. That has given her courage. Love, asks the princess. In the first of two outpourings, Tanto amore segreto, Liu tells the princess that she loves the prince, knowing there can be no hope, but knowing also the joy that is simply there in love. This enrages Turandot, who commands she be tortured more. Ping calls for the executioner, as does the crowd. Terrified she will not be able to keep silent, Liu asks to speak with the princess. This is the second of Liu's great outpourings. Tu kedijel se cinta, you who are bound in ice, you too will love the prince. With the dawn, you will know what I have known. With that, Liu quickly grabs a dagger from the executioner and kills herself. She shocks the prince and the crowd. Turandot has no reaction. Timur is disoriented. At first, he thinks this has been a bad dream. They are waking from. He tells Liu they must be up and on their way. He can sense it is the dawn. Ping grabs him. Wake up, old man. She's dead. The crowd forms a funeral cortege for Liu, asking her spirit not to curse them. Everyone, including the masks, joins in, escorting her body to burial. This is the last music Puccini wrote. The rest of the opera is Alfano's edition of sketches and indications that were left behind. Turandot and the prince are alone. She veils herself. At first, he is rageful. In turn, she cries out that she is not of common human cloth. But he decrees that she is indeed human, as her very presence beside him, her beauty proves. He approaches her. She fends him off. But suddenly, he rips her veil away and kisses her. Oh, oh, oh. 
but his predatory manner changes when he sees that indeed she is human, trembling in fear in his arms. It is dawn now, and she has lost. He sings to her of the glory of love, of the first kiss, and of the first tear, il primo pianto, il primo bacio. She can only echo his primo pianto. That first tear is the end, she says, not the beginning. She can feel herself sinking into nothingness. She begs him to take what he will, including the mystery of his name, but to leave her. Confidently, the prince tells her he has no intention of leaving. In fact, so certain is he of her love, he will tell her his name. It is Kalaf, son of Timur. Sai Tuonomek, she cries. I know your name. Now she can kill him and she exults. But he is still confident, even as she commands he appear with her before the emperor, where she can reveal his name. the scene changes to the grand courtyard. The emperor and his court are all assembled. It is dawn, and they will discover whether the prince will die or whether Turandalt will marry. My father, she proclaims, I know the name of the stranger. His name is Love Amore. All repeat her word and sing the big melody associated with Kalaf. Even if Puccini didn't quite write this, it seems appropriate for his last opera to end with a grand tune. That was Albert Inarato with an in-depth look into Puccini's Turandot.
The Metropolitan Opera's production of Turandot can be seen on stage now through April 25th, 2020, as well as in cinemas worldwide on October 12th, 2019, live in HD. For more information, visit metopera.org. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.